Grace to you and peace, faith family. If you will please turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Psalms. We are going to be in Psalm 132 this morning. Psalm 132. For those of you who have been with us, you know this, but for those of you who are just joining us or rejoining us for uh, the middle of this series, or we're kind of coming to the end of it now, we're in a series in our Psalms called the Songs of Ascent or the Psalms of Ascent. And as we studied this section of Psalms, it would serve as a hymnal, if you will, for God's people. (coughs) Excuse me. A hymnal for God's people. We began all the way back in Psalm 120. We have been going psalm by psalm, verse by verse, all the way through this beautiful hymnal of God's people as they were traveling to celebrate in the feasts in Jerusalem. This is the song uh, choice or selection that they would have. Now, we have been reminded throughout this entire series that although God's people no longer travel to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts, the church is, however, traveling to a better Jerusalem to celebrate a better feast. And because of that, we can look at these psalms and be reminded of these things and allow them to draw us near to Christ and serve as a psalm as well. Um, and, And this morning, we are in Psalm 132. And much like the other psalms that we have had, Psalm 131, uh, that we studied last week, this is not a song of lament, and neither is it a necessarily a song of praise. Uh, Psalm 132, however, is deeply connected to Psalm 130 and Psalm 131. If you remember with me, if you were journeying with us through this, Psalm 130, we saw that the psalmist was beginning to talk about this idea of hope that we are to hope in God. And then in Psalm 131, what we studied last week, is we saw that the psalm was real, psalmist was saying, because we have hope, we can have contentment. And we discussed that last week. And here, in Psalm 132, we discover the covenantal basis for each of these. We're going to come now and come to God in the midst of this idea of the contentment and of hope, and we find the actual rooting of this in the covenant that God has made with his people. It is a song of prayer for God to bless the sanctuary, which would be the temple from which, to which these people were traveling. So if you put yourself in the framework of this psalm, the psalmist, uh, the, the, the people of God are now traveling to this temple that they are about to go see, and they are praying for God to bless this temple that they are about to travel in. And uh, this, this is, and it becomes a very important thing for us as we again travel to a different temple altogether. And in it, there are three requests. One of the difficult parts of this psalm was to break it down and to make it, in some way, shape, or form, a uh, a psalm that I could uh, basically preach from out of an outline. It, it it took me a few minutes to do this, but what I have decided to do is uh, due to the fact that this psalm, what stood out to me in my study, was this psalm uh, has three imperatives, three commands, three requests, if you will, for God to do. And I've, I've kind of used these three, and it's not going to fit real well in your uh, delineators of your chapters in your Bible, but that's okay, y'all just stick with me. I want to use these three imperatives, these three commands, if you will, that will form the structure of our study this morning. And those three are to remember 
to rise and to remain. The, the psalmist will ask God to remember, he will tell him to rise, and then he will tell him to remain. And I think these three imperatives give us a, a, a system, if you will, to begin to look at this uh, psalm together. So with that being said, and as we study that this morning, let us join our hearts and our heads and our eyes and our ears together as we read this great psalm in Psalm 132. Uh, I will be reading it uh, if you will follow along with me. Psalm 132, a song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf, all his affliction. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, Surely I will not enter my house, nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the field of Jar. Let us go into his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your godly ones sing for joy. For the sake of David, your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I will teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it from his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I, here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision and will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation, and her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown will shine. That is the word of the Lord. Amen? Let us pray. Gracious God and King, we come before you this morning asking for you to meet with us. God, for you anoint the preaching of your word, for you to be with your servant this morning. I pray that I will preach this word that is in keeping with the intended uh, purpose and message that you have provided for your people. And that God, for those of us who are gathered here who know you as our Lord, our Savior, our King, that God, we would see this in reflection of the new covenant, that we would be able to see this in our own journey toward a new Jerusalem, and that God, we would also be willing to... Um, See this in relationship to the new feast that we will have with you because of your gracious work on the cross of Calvary. And Father, for those here who are here who might not know you, God, I pray that today would be their day of salvation and that they would come to know you before it's eternally too late. I pray your blessings upon this message. I pray that you would bless your people with this word. And I pray that you would be glorified by it. For it's in Christ's name and for his sake we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. So first, I want us to see the first imperative. The first imperative from the psalmist is this call to remember. The call of the Lord to remember all that David endured to establish the dwelling place, the sanctuary of God. That's what you see here. Remember, O Lord, 
on David's behalf. That is a command. It's an imperative. It's, it's the imperative of the psalmist that is basically commanding or, if you will, petitioning God to remember all that David endured in order for him to establish this place that they were traveling to. Well, were they traveling? They were traveling to this sanctuary, the temple of, of God, the place in which um, God would dwell with them. It is a call to remember or a call to rem- call to bring to mind the afflictions of David. Pleading for God to remember, for God to remember all the things that David, his servant, had done. Now, I do want to remind you of this because I think it's very important to us. When we speak about God remembering, because I've heard this uh, used, that God will not remember our sins. What are we meaning by that? And, And I think it's very important for us to understand the theology behind that. When we say God will not remember our sins, it doesn't mean that God doesn't know about our sins. Because if God would ever to not to know about something, it would, be, it would make Him, therefore, uh, cease to be omniscient. So we are, we are in the midst of two, uh, two positions that seem to be contradictory to one another. That if, if, if it means to remember something, then I would have to have forgotten it in order to remember it. So in order to remember it, I must have forgotten it. So in order to forgotten it, I must not have known it. And this puts us in a very precarious position as believers because then, therefore, we're sitting here going, well, then God must have forgotten my sins. And we use the verses, uh, for instance, in Isaiah, that God will cast your sins as far as the east is from the west, and I will remember it no more. So then, therefore, God must not know it. Well, beloved, if that is the case, then, then we serve a God that uh, is without some sort of knowledge. And I don't believe that. I believe God knows all things from beginning to end. I believe God is sovereign. He is omniscient. So I think we have a problem. We might have a problem. Uh, Houston, we may have a problem, right? And I don't think our problem is in what God knows. I think our our problem is in what it means to remember. And I want to tell you this because it's very important. Because six times, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, here in this verse, God is pleading for, uh, the, 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 the psalmist is pleading for God to remember. So it's not that God has in some way forgotten. But it is the plea of the psalmist for God, for the Lord to bring it back to his attention as they travel. In other words, when it says, when God says to, in the, in the, in the uh, prophets, that I will cast your sins as far as the east is from the west and I will remember it no more, what God is saying is I will no longer bring it to your account. I will not bring it back to your present account. Why will I not remember it? Because of what your Savior has done. Because of what Jesus has done. It's not that he doesn't know about your sin. Oh, he knows about your sin. He knows who you were. He knows what you've done. It's the fact that God will not bring that to your account in judgment. Why? Because God has already brought that to your account in judgment by Christ. And I think that's very important. And so that's what the psalmist is asking. He's asking the Lord, God, I know that you know these things. I know that you know. It's, it's like this. If, 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 if what we were saying here is that God must have forgotten what David did, what kind of God is that? God, did you think the psalmist is saying, God, we know that you've forgotten what David did, all of his afflictions. We know that you've forgotten all that David went through. So we're asking you to remember it because you've forgotten it. No. No, it's the psalmist saying, I want you to bring it back to the forefront of your mind. God, I want, you to, I want you to bring it back. I want you to bring this idea of all that David has done, and I want you to bring it to all that is going to happen. Bring attention to it, if you will. 
Six times here in this chapter, by the way, God is referenced as Lord. Lord, L-O-R-D. And last week we mentioned that whenever you see Lord, especially when it's capitalized in your passage, in your, in your Bibles, that that is speaking about the covenantal name of God. The covenantal name of God. It is translated in two different ways. Same name, two different ways. Yahweh, which a Hebrew, would, a Jewish person would never uh, speak to God in the, in the terms of Yahweh. And the translation also of that, Yahweh, is also Jehovah. So Jehovah and Yahweh are the same, uh, uh, the same translation of the name of God, which is what we are translated here, Lord. So if you look in your Bibles, verse 1, for instance, it says, Remember, O Lord. Notice it's all caps. Ch- verse 2, Lord. Lord, it's all caps. Verse 5, Lord, again. Verse 8, Lord, again. Verse 13, Lord. So he's giving us an indication here because we're reminded that what in the Old Testament and especially in the Bible because we didn't have uh, highlights or anything, when God wanted to make a, uh, when God's people wanted to make an influence or to, to emphasize something, they would repeat themselves. So it's obvious here that the psalmist is repeating this covenantal identity with God and it's the covenantal promise that God would, ha- would make. You see, when speaking of God as creator in the Old Testament, they would have used the word Elohim or Elohim. But when speaking of God as the one of the covenant, it is always referenced as Lord or Yahweh or Jehovah. And here, the psalmist calls God to remember the covenant, particularly the covenant that he made with who? Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf. So what we are doing now is we are here talking about this Davidic covenant. And here God is again showing us this rooting us in the covenantal promise that he has made with his people in the Davidic covenant, which, by the way, was the outworking also of the, of the Mosaic covenant. It was the outworking of the uh, Abrahamic covenant, which was also an outworking of the, uh, uh, the Adamic covenant and the Noahic covenant. And if we were to go all the way back through these, we would be able to see these working through. Of course, this morning, I'm not going to preach a message on all the covenants of God in the Old Testament. But I do think it's important for you to understand what is the psalmist specifically referencing here is he's referencing on behalf of David, for which David, by the way, was afflicted. And, and why David and how was David afflicted ought to be your question if you come to this. David may have been troubled in many ways, but here the psalmist seems to be concerned with a particular affliction. How do I know that? Well, Verses 2 through 5. This is the affliction that he is speaking of. Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf, all his affliction. What affliction? Here it is, how he swore to the Lord, swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, surely I will not enter my house nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And here it is, this is the affliction that that the, the psalmist is speaking about, is that David swore and vowed to the Lord, or the mighty one of Jacob. In a day when men, ladies and gentlemen, are flippant in their commitments and their vows and their oaths, we are reminded that God remembers them all. God is very, very keen to what we make promises to. He's very aware of what His promises are to us, praise be to God. And, and here he is saying that David has, God has made these promises. 
And I want you to notice the, the distinction, the repetitive nature. Not only does he call him Lord, but he calls him what? The mighty one of Jacob. And, and why does he call them this? Because again, it's going all the way back. Again, I'm talking here about these covenantal promises, and I'm, I don't want to belabor this too much, but I think it's very important. So what was the, the covenant? When, did God, when was God proclaimed as the mighty one of Jacob? Turn with me to Genesis. Genesis chapter 49. It's the first time it appears when Jacob is giving his blessing in chapter 49, verse 24. We're going to go to verse 22 because it gives us great indication of what he's talking about. He says this, he says, Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. So this is the first time we see this idea. It's Jacob blessing Joseph, and in the blessing of Joseph, he declares God as the mighty one of Jacob. Now the only other place that this idea is mentioned, that him being the mighty one of Jacob, is in the book of Isaiah. And I think this is very telling. So I want us to go back. Who is Jacob? Jacob is what? Israel, the one who would come and would be the progenitor, if you will, of the nation of God's people. The one who would be out of the uh, Abrahamic covenant, and out of the Abrahamic covenant, God would come with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and out of Jacob, he would form his people, and out of Jacob would come David, which is in the Davidic covenant. All right, so here we have this, and now what I want us to do is to pour into where else did he mention this idea of the mighty one of Jacob, and it is in Isaiah. So turn with me to the prophet Isaiah. We're going to go to chapter 49. There are two places. Both of these places, I believe, are identical, so I don't think I have to repeat both of them. I think they both said the same thing, but I want to pay attention to them. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 26. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 26. Maybe it's a little bit different. We might read both of them. Why not? You're here for the morning. Listen to what he says. He says, uh, let's go to 25 for... Uh, for context, surely thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty man will be taken away and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with you with the one who contends with you and I will save your sons. Speaking to his people. I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh and they will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. 
and all flesh will know what that I the Lord am your Savior and your Redeemer the mighty one of Jacob so what is he what is he referencing God as the mighty one of Jacob who would be what their Savior and their Redeemer Right? Which is exactly when we went back to Genesis, we saw God preparing in that uh, promise to Joseph that he was going to send this Savior and this Redeemer. And also turn to 60.16, Isaiah 60, verse 16. To get context, we'd have to go all the way back to verse 10. If you will bear with me, I'm going to hop into this um, straight into verse 16, uh, trusting that you will um, just trust me that I'm, I'm keeping this in context. Verse 16 says, You will also suck the milk of nations and suck the breast of kings. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. You see, it seems to me that what God is doing, returning back to the psalmist, is that what seems here is that the psalmist is saying he is reflecting on the God who promises to save uh, his people, not only promises to save his people, but has the power to save his people. So when here he's saying, and he, he, how he swore to the Lord, David swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, the one who made the promise to save his people, and the one who had the power to made his, uh, save his people. And this seems to be what is happening in the midst, of, in the midst of, his, of this prayer, of the midst of this psalm. And then if you go back to verses 3 through 5, it now says, Surely I will not enter my house, nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. A reminder that David did not rest until he found a dwelling place for his God. David vowed that the worship of God by all exceeded any desire for his own comfort and need. I want to say that again, that David, when he made this promise to God that I will not sleep nor slumber, I will not reach for my comfort until your worship is known, that David knew and he vowed that the worship of God by all exceeded any desire of his own comfort and need. That the desire of God's people exceeded his own personal desires and need. Let me say it again because we've lost it in our culture. That God's people, God's, the worship of God, number one, is preeminent. The covenantal relationship of God to his people and all of his community be able to worship him is secondary even to our own desires and needs. A.K.A. it's not all about you. And David is saying it's not about me, it's not about my comforts, it's not about my needs. God is to be worshipped and I will not cease until he is. And you, you should ask the question why. Here's why. Because glorifying God and enjoying Him forever was and ought to be the highest priority for those who would serve Him as King and as Lord. It ought to be the highest priority of God's people. Beloved, I want you to pay close attention. This is the plea of remembrance. 
God, we are asking for you to remember because it's based on God's promise and it's based on David's obedience to that promise. God, we want you to remember that you made a covenantal promise with us that you would be our God, that you would be our, the mighty one of Jacob, that you would be with us. You made this promise to us. And you remember David's obedience to that promise by creating this temple by which we're going to. We're about to go worship you at this place. We want you to remember that. I know what some of you are sitting here going, but didn't David make mistakes? What about David's faults and his failures? Out of all of David's faults and failures, guess what? He kept to one reality. He kept to one promise, and he kept to the one true and only God. In spite of all his sin, in spite of all his failure with Bathsheba, with, and all of his sin with Uriah, and all these things, he still kept to the fact that God was God. Unlike his son Solomon, who would be ultimately swayed by his, by his wives and swayed by many other people, David never did that. David kept to God, and he kept to the Jehovah God, the Lord his God. I want you to keep this in mind as we continue, because it's a plea for God to remember the covenant he made and the obedience of David, not the perfection of David, to see it come to pass. Beloved, I want us to rest in this solemn truth that along our journey to our holy place, that God is faithful and He remembers His covenantal promises to us as well. God remembers the afflictions. He remembers the trouble of what His people have endured all for His glory. And the psalmist here says, We heard of it in Ephrathah. Now, you've got to ask, what is the question? This is verse 6. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah as he's continued. We found it in the field of Jar. So you've got to ask, what is the it? And whatever you put the it in, you've got to ask, okay, where, where is he going with this? So he's just got done talking about this dwelling place. He's just got done talking about God's promises. So the it here seems to indicate the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, which he would place in where? In the resting place, in the place in which they are traveling to. So the it here seems to be the ark of God, and it says, Behold, we heard of it, the ark, in Ephrathah. Now, if verse 6 begins a new section, then this would make a translation a little bit more difficult. But if we include it with what we've just read, then I think it makes it fairly simple. Why? Because the psalmist is asking God to remember David, who was afflicted for vowing to provide a dwelling place for God's presence, indicated by none other than the ark of the covenant. Now, if I were to go back and share this story with you, we could do that. But I want to remind you, remember the story with me from 1 Samuel. Specifically in chapters 4 through 6. The ark was lost to the Philistines. And apparently, by the time of David, the location of the ark fell out of public memory. Perhaps it had even been given over to be lost forever. But then David heard about the ark in Ephrathah. Which makes sense. Because we know that David was born in Ephrathah. So for David to be born there, he would have an idea of where the Ark of the Covenant was. Because where the Ark of the Covenant had been lost and where the Ark of the Covenant was found is where David was from. And he would have had stories about the Ark being there, which makes sense to us. And by the way, do you know where Ephrathah is? None other than Bethlehem. 
And verse 6 says that we found it in the field of Jar, which is located in a place called Kiriath-Jerim. So then the men of Kiriath-Jerim would take the ark to the house of Abinadab, 1 Samuel chapter 7. And if you've been through the book of Samuel, you would have read this. And so the psalmist proclaims with joy to those who are on this journey, let us go into this dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. So behold, we, uh, God, I want you to remember David. I want you to remember all the things that he promised that he was going to build this place. We found the ark in Ephrathah. We found it in the field of Jar. We brought it back to, this, uh, to the location that you have for us. We, uh, let us Now we are going to this dwelling place. We are coming to worship at your footstool. Footstool. The Old Testament picture of God's presence. That's the, that's the footstool of God. And although, ladies and gentlemen, that God is seated in the heavens and His footstool on earth would always be localized in the Old Testament in the Ark of the Covenant. This is all a plea for one simple thing. Donnie, what are you getting at? Here it is. It's all a plea for us to worship Him and to worship our Lord and our God and our King. Because He is worth our worship. God, will you remember us? Will you remember us? Remember the promises that you made. God, I'm asking you to recall the promises that you made to us. And, and, and church, if, 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 if they can say this, remember, O oh Lord, on David's behalf, that he would he would come and provide a place for God to, to dwell, then, then ought we not to be a people who could plead for, to worship God, for God to remember the covenant that he made that where we have found a place to dwell? And none other than his son Jesus. But we no longer, we no longer travel to a temple where an ark is located. Because all those, the Bible says, were symbols and pictures of what was ultimately to be fulfilled in Jesus. How are we at worshiping our Lord and our King? So that's the first thing. God, would you remember us? I can't tell you how many times I've cried that. God, in midst of all of our afflictions, would you, would you remember us? Would you remember the covenant that you made with your son? And would you draw us to yourself? May we worship at your footstool. For where is our dwelling place, church? Our dwelling place is not in mere places where stones built by men's hands Our dwelling place is none other than in Jesus. So that's our first command, our command to remember. The second command to God from remembering David to rising to this resting place. It's a call for God to come near. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place. Come near, God. By the way, this, this was used in the battle in Numbers 10. 
But it was also used in another place, this call for God to come near. This call, this word that it's being used here for for God to come to his resting place. It was used in Numbers 10, the first time it was ever used. But it was also used by David's son, Solomon, who was called to actually build the temple. I want you to listen to what he writes. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Because this was so beautiful to me. Because if this is any indication of, of, uh, of, of, of Solomon and all of his wrong now, uh, and if this is true, and if Solomon could have possibly written this, this passage, uh, by the way, Second Chronicles chapter 6, if Solomon could have possibly written this, this psalm, then the amazing part of him asking God to remember is David and not himself. To remember the loyalty of his father and not only himself is just unbelievable, really, if you sit back and think about it. But turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 41 through 45. Now, what's going on here? Solomon is dedicating what? The temple. Which is what? Where these people are headed. you got to remember this, right? This is where we're headed. If we were all journeying together, we would be singing this psalm, and I would be telling you we're headed to the temple, and where did we get this? Listen to what he's going to say in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Listen to verse 41 and 42. Now therefore arise, O Lord God, to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priest, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your godly ones rejoice in what is good. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Remember your loving kindness to your servant David. Now turn back to me to Psalm 134. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your godly ones sing for joy. And then, uh, and then it says, verse 11, And the Lord swore to David a truth from which, I'm sorry, verse 10, For the sake of David, do not turn away from the face of your anointed. Does it sound familiar? amazing now it is due to this similarity if i can say this this um copying it if if you will it is due to this that many hold that either solomon wrote this psalm or that solomon possibly knew this psalm at the dedication of the temple so it's possible that solomon would have wrote this song for the purpose this part of the song for the dedication of the temple or the possibility of Solomon writing this after the dedication of the temple because he takes it from the dedication liturgy and makes it a part of this psalm. Regardless, it is, it is virtually identical. It's a call for God not only to remember but to come here. God, our covenant God, the God who is the God of the promise but also the God of power, to come here where we can experience your presence. The idea of God resting is deeply connected to the idea of God's rest with the rest of those He has redeemed. And read verse 9. Let your priest be clothed with righteousness and let your godly ones sing for joy. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Arise, God, to this place. Remember and now come and rest. And out of this rest, I want something to happen. And what does he cry for? The idea that God, that our rest is to come and the priest will be clothed with righteousness and the godly ones will sing for joy. You see, our rest was disturbed in the garden. 
But in God's redemption, he restores this rest with his own and he dwells with his own in his presence once again. And in it, in this restoration, in this redemption, in the God coming to us, his priests are clothed with righteousness. Who are his priests today? We believe in the priesthood of believers. That we are clothed with righteousness. God, would you come and clothe us, cover us with righteousness. And listen, and his godly ones sing for joy. This is a sense of a loud jubilation, an overwhelming song for the joy expressed. Church, can I ask a question without, without sounding hypocritical or judgmental or anything? Where is it? Where is it? Where is the loud jubilation, the overwhelming song for the joy that we have? This is why you have often heard us say that the worship of the Lord as your Savior partially is insufficient. Let me say it again. The worship of your Lord and Savior partially is insufficient. And you have all kind of people judging why that is. Why is, our, why is the worship of God's people today so utterly sad? Why are men incapable of singing? You see, we, we men today have gotten into the idea that singing must be for the ladies. This is King David, bro. This is the dude who like took a slingshot to a giant, became king. This is Solomon, wisest, richest man ever to walk the face of the planet. You're telling me? These aren't men? Or somehow there's some weaker side of men because they ain't singing? These are warrior pr- priests. Y'all hear me? You see... I came up with some ideas in my mind based upon my own heart, based upon my own life, based upon my own life. This is me talking why, why I as a man often won't sing with jubilance, why I don't sing with joy. This is from my own heart. I'm not judging. I'm not looking at anybody in this room saying this is why you're not singing. If it is why you're not singing, your own spirit, your own heart will convict you. But I'm talking to you as from my experience. The reason this man has often been incapable of worship and song is because I was failing to see the beauty and the majesty of God. I'm so distracted by the ugliness of all the things that are around me, by the hurt and the pain, that I just can't see His beauty and His majesty, and it leads me to being a pathetic worshiper. Secondly, when I fail to grasp the depth of my own redemption, I can sit in my chair and not sing. 
So that's two things I know in my own life when I fail to sing, I am not seeing the glory and the majesty of God well and I'm not seeing the goodness of my redemption well. Because I'm going to tell you, if you saw the glory and majesty of Jesus, you couldn't help but sing. The reason you're not singing isn't because you're not thinking right, isn't because you're too cool for school, isn't because, oh well, you know, men don't sing. No, the reason you're not singing is because you don't see Jesus as being beautiful or you don't understand your own redemption. Because, boy, if you knew from whence you came, if you understood from what you were saved from, you couldn't help but worship Him. You couldn't help but give Him praise. You couldn't help but give Him glory. Some, I I have been there where I was too concerned with what others may say, what others may think, because I can't sing worth a lick. My wife sitting next to me has a beautiful voice and she is singing like an angel in heaven and I sound like a truck stop. Man, what are people going to think if I, if, I sing, if I sing wrong? You know, there are times over here, I'm pretty sure Mary and Terry have caught it, that there are times a song is singing and I'm still singing. I don't know what I'm doing, I'm just singing. There were times in which I was too concerned with what others may say, whether it be my wife or my children. Some of you are so concerned. The reason many men are concerned with what their wife or their children may say is because if they actually sing about amazing grace, but yet don't live with amazing grace, they know the hypocrisy in their home, so obviously they can't sing it because to sing it would have their children looking at him going, Dad, how dare you sing God is good when in the home you're not saying anything about God. That is true. That is true. there was another time I didn't worship God. And I think this is probably the most prominent reason that I have seen. There are men in this, I believe there are men in our congregation, there are men, men in every congregation, men who won't sing because they don't, know who the glory, they don't know the glory of God. Men who won't sing because they don't really understand their redemption. Men who won't sing because of their own hypocrisy or their fear of what others may think about them. I'll never forget I had a group of teenagers once five of them one of them boys could sing I mean he could sing had a beautiful voice and there were five I was in the student ministry at East Brent and I brought him to me and I said hey man I noticed that you weren't you weren't you weren't singing he goes yeah I brought my friends and I said why why wouldn't you sing bringing your friends he goes man I just don't know what that would look like But here's the last one. Here's the last reason that I have failed to worship God. It's the simple reality that I was lost and I had nothing to rejoice in. You see, I think, I think the reason many men don't sing in church See, what we try to do, I, I've seen that, I've been in meetings, y'all. I've been in meetings where youth people, uh, worship people will get together and they go, okay, we got to create a feeling. We got to create this emotion. No, the reason men aren't singing, many men, is because they're lost. You've never been redeemed. That's just my opinion. That's my experience. 
So I want to remember, God, I want you to remember, and God, I want you to rise, and I want you to come. I want you to come here. I want you to come here so bad. So bad. And lastly, we have a third command, and it's the command to remain. It will complete the rest of the psalm. He says, verse 10, For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Here it is. Do not turn away. This is the Hebrew, uh, it's called jusiv or jusiv or whatever you want to call it. It's, a, it's basically an imperative. It works like an imperative. Do not turn away the face of your anointed. Oh, but hold up, wait a minute. Did y'all see that? Let's, let's work this out. So here we could say that the psalmist, to the current audience, is telling God to keep his promise to David, his anointed king, for the sake of all that David had done. You see, all the people are aware of God's call to David. But hold up, what a beautiful picture. Listen to me, in one sense, God promised David that he would not forsake him. But that's penultimate, that's secondary. So listen, this is David and Solomon, but in an ultimate sense, it points us further, which the writer doesn't even fully know. The psalmist doesn't even fully know. Why? Because the word for anointed is the word that we would use for the Messiah. So here, in one sense, he's saying, do not turn your face away of your anointed, of your king. King David and King Solomon, that's in the penultimate sense. But here he is saying, do not turn it away in the ultimate sense from the one in which who has come as the promise for David from David, who would be who? None other than Jesus, our Messiah. For the Lord swore to David a truth that God will not turn back from that which God has promised. He will place his descendant upon a throne, and if his sons keep his covenant and testimony that God taught them, their sons will sit on the throne forever. This is verses 11 through 12. That's that's the whole point in verses 11 through 12. But the question would be how? How are his sons going to sit on the throne forever and ever? Through the covenant of redemption fulfilled by the Messiah, Jesus. No wonder Matthew starts with what for Jesus? In the, in the gospel, what does Matthew begin with? He begins with the lineage, placed him in the Davidic line, who would be the what? The promised Messiah to come, the anointed one. And then here, the psalmist is going to give us the reason for such faithfulness. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. For it was in God's promised place that God would bring about God's promised purposes. Why would God choose Zion to be His habitation? You want to know why? Because God decided it to be. If you don't like that, we need to go back up into chapter verse, uh, uh, Psalm 131, verse 1, where it says, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Here's why God chose that, because God decided it. It's not of human decision. It's of divine declaration. It's God's sovereign plan and purposes that are going to come to light in all He declared. Beloved, I want you to read this. God says, I will abundantly 
give a bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with what? Bread. Her priest will be clothed with salvation and her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. Then I come, I come to the New, the New Testament and where Jesus said, I have come to give life and give it abundantly. Where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Where he taught, I am the living water. The idea for the needy refers to the day laborers who would spend, who would depend on the mercy of others for daily survival. And the Bible is saying that he will satisfy the poorest of the poor with what? Bread. And then, the, and then as though the answer is given for the plea from verse 9. Remember verse 9, it says, let your, he's pleading, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your godly ones sing for joy. And then the answer comes in verse 16. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation and her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. And then he writes, there I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. What is this horn of David stuff? Well, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. I think it's going to give us a great indication. Jeremiah chapter 23. Watch verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up for David a righteous branch and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and the Lord will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. You see, this horn of the Lord is what is directly referring to, Jeremiah is referring to as the Messiah. The horn of David speaks of the one who would come in the power of his kingdom. There, will I, there I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. It would be for God's promise to David that God will not allow his promises of a kingly line to be extinguished. Because it would be fulfilled. And when would his promises be fulfilled? In none other than Jesus himself. And then I want you to notice verse 18. This is the part, this, half of this we don't like, the other half we all like. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. You see church, when all of this comes forth, when God does what he does, when he remembers, when he rises, and when he rests, 
there is justice to come. There is justice. His enemies I will clothe with, with shame. It's a reminder of the truth of justice and glory at the hand of Jehovah. On the one hand, the enemies will be clothed with shame. And on the other hand, himself. Notice, but upon himself. So somewhere, some way, we go back and then we begin to read, I have, there I will cause the horn of David. Oh, it's himself. So it's a person that he's speaking of. But upon himself, his crown will shine. Spurgeon would write this, Their shame they will be unable to hide. It shall cover them. God will array them in it forever, and it shall be their dress for all eternity. But for him, his crown will shine. You know, we sing, though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king reigning over all. So I will not fear, for this truth remains that my God is the Ancient of Days. Though the dread of night overwhelms my soul, He is here with me, I am not alone. Of His love is sure, and He knows my name, for my God is the Ancient of Days. Though I may not see what the future brings, I will watch and wait for the Savior King, then my joy complete standing face to face in the presence of the Ancient of days. Matthew chapter 25. I want to read this and then I'll conclude. Beginning in verse 31. Listen. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will see it, sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another. As the, shepherd, as, the, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him. Notice the righteous. Because they will be clothed in righteousness. The righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to him, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to the, one, least, to the one of these brethren of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. And then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. 
And then they themselves will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, truly I say unto you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Did you hear it? It's not death and then nothing. It's death and then eternal punishment or eternal life. So beloved, what do we do with this? Well, I think we do nothing less than ask God to remember. But you see, we, unlike the people in the Psalms, we have a better David. So it's a constant call. God, will you remember your son Jesus? Remember what he's done on my behalf. Remember the temple, the body, the death that he died, the life that he lived, the things that he did, to whom I come to for my salvation. Remember his afflictions that he endured. Remember all that my better David endured. And God, I want you to remember Jesus on my behalf because if I were to come to you on my own terms, God, I could not stand. I could not come before you. But oh God, if you would remember Him, I know that I could come. And I want you to rise. Come to this resting place and do not turn us away. God, come. I ask that you would come and be with us. Come and sit with us. Come and and dwell among us. God, remember your people. Rise and rest. Clothe us in righteousness. And may our hearts respond with songs of jubilant joy. May we be men and women and children who see our great God and King and worship at His throne forever. None above Him, none before Him. All of time is in His hands. For His throne it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in His name. For my God is the Ancient of Days. Let us rise, church. Prepare our hearts now to participate in the Lord's Supper. If you're here and without Christ, we would call you to salvation, call you to believer's baptism. And we would ask that you would follow Him in spirit and in truth. But if you are here an unbeliever, we would ask that you do not participate in the Lord's Supper, for that is for those who are in, in Christ. And for those of us who are in Christ, we don't want to come to this table in an unworthy manner, so let us spend some moments as we remember as we ask God to remember and to rise and to rest and that he clothe us with righteousness and give us hearts that would just proclaim him with exuberant joy, preparing our hearts not to come to this table in an unworthy manner, but reminding us of all that he did for us on the cross of Calvary, that we are going to hold, literally hold bread and hold a cup in our hands that represent his body and his blood. So church, Let us go before our great God and King in prayer, asking for His forgiveness and His grace as we participate in these elements. Let us pray.